Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. Well, again, welcome, and uh, today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So last week, if you were here, we started a new series called uh, The Week That Changed the World, and we call it that because we're looking at the events of what's known as Holy Week, the final weeks of Jesus' earthly ministry uh, when he rode. Last week, we looked at the story of Jesus' triumphal entry, which is even kind of strange to call it that because Jesus rode into Jerusalem, not on a conquering war horse, but on a donkey, this humble animal. Um, he was fulfilling prophecy as he did that, and the crowds were cheering him on and welcoming him just like they would welcome a king or messiah. And the crowds shout his praise, hail him as king. Uh, Jesus doesn't stop them, even though the Pharisees tell him to. He says, if, if they kept silent, even the stones would cry out. And then he goes into the temple, and he starts cleaning house, and he drives out the money changers, And the question that we're going to look at this week is all about what just happened. Because at this point, all of the religious authorities in Jerusalem are wondering, who do you think you are to come into our temple, to clean house, to tell us how to run things? The guiding question for today is, what gives you the right, Jesus? What gives you the right? Who do you think you are? Uh, It's a question about authority. And in a moment, we're going to uh, read the entire passage, and uh, we won't have time to kind of zoom in on every single part of it, but I want you to, to see all the events, because I do think that this really is all about, Luke chapter 20 is all about Jesus's authority. What right does he have to do the things that he's doing, and to say the things that he's saying, and to clean the temple, and all, the, all these things? And I, I, to get at this, I want you to just imagine this situation for a moment, okay? Imagine you, or your family, you're sitting down to dinner, about to take the first bite, and someone just walks right in your front door. Says, hey, take that TV down. Move it to a different room. <laughs> you barely know this person. Like, uh, hey, uh, no, more, uh, no more YouTube here. <laughs> no more social media. Stop parenting that way. <laughs> Sell that boat out there. <laughs> right? I was like, who are you? <laughs> like that kind of like... What is going on? Who is this person? Who do you think you are? That's what the religious leaders were feeling. They felt like Jesus was strolling right into their space that they thought they had authority over and telling them what to do in that space and what to do and how to lead that space. And again, they are asking the very same question that you or I would ask if we were there and in their shoes. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Uh, We're going to read all the way through Luke chapter 21, verse 4. All these verses will be on the screen, so you can follow along there as well. And let's just read the entire thing, and then we'll work our way back through it. And just keep in mind that this is all about authority. Here's what the gospel writer Luke records for us. He says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, 
The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, that must never happen. But he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. And then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well then, he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for her, his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God since they are children of the resurrection. 
Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, teacher, you've spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. And then he said to them, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Messiah be his son? While the people were listening, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. They, these will receive harsher judgment. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings in the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. All right. It's a long passage of scripture. Again, we won't have time to look at all the details. I wish we did. There's good stuff here. Um, But we are going to focus in on this question of authority because that is really what what ties together this whole chapter. The uh, religious leaders asking Jesus, what right do you have? Who gives you the right to come here, to say these things, to tell us how to lead the temple, what goes on here? What right do you have, Jesus? And I think throughout the chapter, in different ways, Jesus is answering that question. So the first answer I think we begin to get is even right away when they ask him this question and he answers their question with a question of his own. I love that smooth. Answer the question with a question. (laughs) It reminds me of college days where we (laughs) tried to do this in sticky ways when we didn't have an answer, right? Like professor asked a question like, well, let me ask a question of my own, professor. But Jesus does it authentically. And what's interesting to me is that, well, let's look at it. Let's look back at this, all right? So he's teaching the people in the temple, and he's proclaiming the good news. This is just another word for the gospel. So Jesus is preaching the gospel about the coming kingdom. And the chief priests, the scribes, with the elders came and said to him, tell us by what authority are you doing these things, right? Who is it that gave you this authority? What right do you have, Jesus? He says, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? Now, I'll just be clear. It could be that Jesus is just kind of putting them on the line and putting them on the hook and setting up a question for them that they don't want to answer, right? Because as you keep reading, you find out that they know all the people love John the Baptist and that if he says, if, if they say, you know, oh, John the Baptist was just a human, he didn't have authority from God, then the people are going to be very unhappy with them. And that's the last thing they want. But I think Jesus is giving a piece of his answer, actually. Because you have to know, right? This is, this is years into Jesus' ministry, at least three years into Jesus' public ministry. And what set off this public ministry? We looked at the story about a year ago. Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. 
And Luke records that all Jerusalem was going out to John the Baptist to hear his preaching, to hear his words, and to even be baptized by him. And Jesus, too, went to be baptized by him. And you have to know that they have heard the stories of what happened when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Stories that heaven itself was opened for a moment. And something like a dove, the Spirit of God descended on this man. And a voice from heaven, people heard out loud, said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's Messiah language, the son of God. You have to know they've heard these stories. So what did you say? Was it legitimate when John the Baptist baptized me? And that voice from heaven said, you are my son? Hey, religious leaders, what do you think? I think this is the first answer to their question. Where did you get your authority? What did Jesus answer? From the father himself at my baptism. That's where I got my authority. But they're too afraid to answer Jesus, and so he doesn't answer them. But again, I think he is starting to already give his answer, that he got his authority, at least partially, at the moment of his baptism. And then the next thing Luke records is that Jesus tells this parable, and I won't read the whole thing again. I'll just summarize what happens. He tells this parable of a vineyard. Now, everyone listening would have immediately thought, This vineyard represents the people of Israel because there's a strong tradition in the prophets themselves to compare the people of Israel to a vineyard. Like, for example, Isaiah 5, 7 says, for the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, right? Those were the fruits God was looking for. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. So this is an analogy that the prophets use over and over again. Israel is like a vineyard. And so when Jesus tells this parable of the vineyard and says, you know, a man planted a vineyard, right? Who's the man? God planted a vineyard. And so in this parable, then who would the tenants be? The tenant farmers. It's the leaders, right? It's them, the people asking Jesus these questions and making these accusations, right? That God gave you responsibilities over his people, And he expected fruit from you. And in the parable Jesus tells, he says, you know, the the owner of the vineyard sent messengers. Sounds like the prophets in the Old Testament. Lord sent prophets to you over and over again. And what did you do to the prophets? Didn't listen, didn't repent. Many of them you persecuted and even killed. And then God said, or I mean the owner of the vineyard, but Jesus' parable, that's what it symbolizes, right? The owner of the vineyard says, they're not listening to my messengers. Maybe they'll listen to my son. He sends his son. And they decide to kill him, thinking that somehow they'll inherit the vineyard at that point. It's interesting because their assumption is the owner of the vineyard is never coming back here. He's far off. He's not coming back. Now think about this in context. What is Jesus saying? Where did he get his authority? Who's Jesus in this parable? The son of the vineyard owner. That's what Jesus is saying. It's quite a claim, isn't it? Jesus is saying, I'm not just some messenger sent by the vineyard owner. I am the son of the vineyard owner. 
this whole thing is mine. He's still answering their question, isn't he? So think back to that opening illustration I gave you, right? You're about to sit down to dinner. Someone barges into your house and says, like, you know, move that TV. Unplug it. Move it right now. <laughs> and you get up from there and be like, who do you think you are? Who are you? And the person looks at you and like, oh, I'm sorry. You don't remember me? I'm Josh. I'm the landlord's son. I take care of all the maintenance around here. And that outlet's no good. <laughs> to change the situation? should, right? Because all of a sudden you realize, oh, this person does have authority to tell me to unplug my TV from that spot and move it somewhere else. Who's got the authority? And I want to pause with the events that we're reading in Luke and just talk for a minute about our lives. Um, At our connection group, we were discussing the message from last Sunday, this last week, uh, and someone brought up an insight that I actually hadn't even thought of. Because last week we looked at Jesus cleansing the temple. And we talked about how like that's very in line with Old Testament kings. Like Hezekiah and Josiah were known as being great kings partly because they cleansed the temple of all this idolatry. And they made sure it was a place of worship to God. And someone in our connection group pointed out like, when you said that, I was thinking about like how the New Testament teaches that you're the temple. I was like, ooh, that's good. I didn't say that. And I was like, that wasn't in my mind, but that's so true. All right, that's what Paul says. You all are the temple. Like the church community is the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. And even you individually, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a temple of the Spirit because the Spirit of God lives in you. And so who has the authority to say what happens in this temple? The king does. He has the authority to clean out the temple which is our lives. And I just want to invite you to, before we continue with this, to, to think about different areas of your life because it still is a question of authority. Because the truth is, some of us, for whatever reason, have received the message that you can make Jesus the Lord of your heart, but not of your life. And I don't think that works. Just like it doesn't work to say, Jesus, you're king, but not of the temple in Jerusalem. If he really is king, he's king and Lord of all. So I just want you to think for a moment through different areas of your life. Uh, I just, you could group this probably into 20 sections, but for the sake of time, I just grouped it into four. Your stuff, your work, your personal time, and your relationships. And I just want to invite you to consider Here's the question. If someone showed up and told you what to do in this area of your life, here's the question. Which of these would arouse the most anger or indignation in your heart about, okay? Someone showed up and said, I don't know, get rid of that painting. Get rid of those wood floors. Start saving. Stop saving. (laughs) Start giving. Don't give there. Invest in Bitcoin. Sell all your Bitcoin. (laughs) Whatever they say. Which of these, all right, your stuff. If someone came and just told you what to do with your stuff, how would you respond? That's one area of life to consider. How about your work? Or if you're a stay-at-home mom, your, your home management, you're a worker too. Very hard one. 
So I said, no, start showing up earlier. Stop giving half efforts. Start telling the brutal truth to your boss. Stop telling white lies. Stop perfectionism. They told you how to handle your work. But that caused you to be like, hey, don't tell me what to do. Or your personal time. Your, your me time. Your you time, right? Someone said, hey, no more social media. All done. <laughs> Forever. Start working out. Stop working out that way. <laughs> no more audiobooks. Start praying regularly. I, I don't know. You fill in the blanks. How would you respond to someone saying, this is, nope, not your time anymore. I'm going to tell you what to do with your personal time. And then finally, with your relationships. Stop ordering your kids around. Stop yelling. Start listening. <laughs> Spend 30 minutes with your spouse every day, just connecting, just talking. I'm just making up things, by the way. But I do want you to consider, all right, if someone just showed up and started ordering you around in any of these areas of life, which one would you be the most like, no? In which of these areas would you most likely be to react like the Pharisees react to Jesus? Like, what right do you have <laughs> with your stuff, your work, your personal time, or your relationships? We're going to return to that question at the end, but I want you to begin considering it now. Because if you look at the Pharisees and the religious leaders, right, they say, Jesus, what right do you have? He tells them this parable up at the vineyard, and he says, I have every right because I am the owner's son. And look at their reaction. If I can find it. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour. Because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Their immediate reaction is not repentance, not like, oh, wow, you're the son of the vineyard owner? Okay, okay, you, I guess you do have a right. It just causes them to get even more angry and more indignant and to actually, what's so fascinating about Jesus, and he's so smart and so, so wise, right? He's just told this parable where the tenants try and kill the son of the vineyard. He's just told that parable. And what is their reaction? We're going to get you, Jesus. <laughs> they're like fulfilling what Jesus just told them and warned them that they're like. It's fascinating to me. So what happens next, uh, and we're, we're going to skip these if we have enough time, we might revisit a few of them. But what happens next is the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders start trying to test to Jesus. And they really do not, they're not looking for truth at this point. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to use questions to trap Jesus in different ways. That's what happens next. Because really, they've asked about Jesus' authority. What right do you have? And Jesus has answered them pretty clearly, right? That one, I got my authority at baptism. You've heard the stories about what happened, how heaven opened, and the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. And I got my authority by fact that I am the son of the vineyard owner. And now they're just mad, and they're trying to trap him. They're trying to trick him so that they can get rid of him. And it's a good warning to us. 
because the way they try to trap Jesus is with questions. And it's just a good warning to us that sometimes we can use the questions a different way. Like sometimes we think we have questions about Christianity or faith of like, oh yeah, but, but why would God do that? Sometimes if you stop and analyze a question, it's not really a question. We're not really seeking truth. We're trying to make an excuse or a reason to legitimate what we have already decided we want to do or what we think is true. So they try and trap Jesus a couple different ways and uh, Jesus doesn't let them get away with it. He answers each of their questions really skillfully. And then at the end of these conversations, Jesus turns the questions back on them. And he asks them a question that gets at the heart of, again, this whole conversation about authority. So let's pick it up in verse 41, where Jesus questions the questioners. Then he said to them, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, pause. Oh, why is that not up there? That's weird. Um, so how can they say that the, the Messiah is the... Wow, sorry. Give me a moment. I just want to make sure I can control slides, and if I can't, then the person running the booth knows that they have to. You guys love um, technical difficulties, right? All the time. It always works well when you don't need it to. Okay, now it's not even showing up. So, all right, Rick, you're on. And hopefully I remember what I was going to say without seeing this slide in advance. Okay. <laughs> then he said to them, uh, how can you say, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? Okay, so, so first some context. What is he talking about? How can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? What's going on? Um, this is a callback to something we looked at recently, 2 Samuel 7. It is God's promise to David that you will have a son who will rule from Jerusalem and he will build the temple and you will always have a descendant to rule from here. That's what God promised to David. And so what happened is that the prophets then picked up this promise and said, no, God's going to make this happen. And so when the prophets prophesied about the Messiah, that word just means anointed one, means king. And so in everyone's mind, the coming king is going to be the son of David. It's going to be one of David's descendants. End of story. Now, what you also have to know is in the ancient world in Israel and many parts of the Middle East still today, there's tons and tons of honor to ancestors, right? You as a son give honor to your father and your grandfather, etc., etc. And so there's this assumption that the coming king will be the son of David. And even though he will be this great king, like in some ways, he's not as great as David because David is his ancestor. Does that make sense? So Jesus questions them about this. He said, how can you, they say that the Messiah is simply the son of David, simply his descendant and nothing more? And then he references Psalm 110. He says, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, and you can go on, Rick, um, your, uh, okay, this is, this is Psalm 110, verses one through three. This is what it says. This is the delight. This is the declaration of the Lord, and it's that Lord. But he says, David says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's a fascinating psalm. And Jesus references it to make the point. David himself is saying, and don't you believe scripture is true, that David himself looked ahead to his coming descendant who would be king and fulfill this promise and is saying, he is my Lord. And so Jesus raises this question um, back to Luke chapter 20. He says, how can you say that he's simply a descendant? Can you um, go forward, Rick, to Luke chapter 20, uh, verse 42 and 43. So Jesus asked, David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David, Jesus says, David calls him Lord. So how can the Christ be his son? So, final answer to the question of authority. This is what Jesus is talking about. Who has the authority? And Jesus is claiming right here that he is not simply the promised son of David, the promised descendant of David to become a king. Jesus is saying, I am David's Lord. That when David looked forward and saw my day, he called me Lord. That's what Jesus is saying, which is incredibly audacious if it's not true. But it is. And so again, this is Jesus' final answer. He is not just the promised son of David, but also the Lord of David. So has he answered their question? I think so. But they don't like it. And I was thinking about this whole passage. I couldn't help but think, um, this this is like... What you're seeing going on is like undercover boss, temple edition. Okay. <laughs> Have you guys ever watched the show Undercover Boss? Right? And I, I love like the, the reveal moments, right? Because the way the show works, for those of you who don't know, um, right? CEO of a company pretends to be just a new hire at a company and train under someone. And they have video cameras and they record it. And then at some point they reveal, you know, to the person who thought they were training a new person and finds out, this is my CEO, right? (laughs) And it's great in a bunch of ways, right? You see this kind of humility of the bosses being willing to, like, be talked back to by employees. And uh, and it's also fascinating to see some some of the things they learn about their own companies and what actually happens on the ground level. But it's, like... This is what's happening. Like that reveal moment where they're like, hey, this is actually your boss. That moment is what's happening in Luke chapter 20. Where Jesus is saying, hey guys, I'm actually your boss. Now what should happen? You guys know. What should happen at this point? Oh, man, I'm sorry, Jesus. You're right. We'll do things your way. And they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) No, that's not what happens, right? Because unlike in the show, um, Jesus doesn't make them serve him. And they continue on with their plan to get rid of him. But this is what's happening all through Luke chapter 20. This the moment of revelation where Jesus is saying, I am your boss. Let me tell you where my authority 
comes from. So what we missed out on is a couple questions that they try and quiz Jesus with. Uh, my favorite is the God and Caesar conversation because they're like, hey, we're going to trick you, Jesus, because look, if you say we need to pay taxes to Rome, you're going to alienate all the people who don't like Rome. And if you say we don't have to pay taxes to Rome, then we can get you in trouble with Pilate. And maybe we can even get you executed as an insurrectionist. So like, yeah, which one, Jesus? Pay taxes or not? And I love Jesus' answer because he says, show me a coin. And they show him a denarius, which has the picture of Caesar on it. He says, okay. Like, this has Caesar's image imprinted on it. Give back to Caesar what is made in Caesar's image. And give back to God what is made in God's image. What's made in God's image? Humans are made in God's image. So once again, we see this kind of levels of authority, right? Sure, give Caesar back his money, but you give back to God what is his, which is your entire life, not just your money. Or the Sadducees try to trick Jesus with a question about the resurrection because uh, they don't believe in the resurrection. So they think, they think they've got this story that will just totally prove that it's nonsense. This is like the first century version of, could God make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? <laughs> <laughs> got you, right? That's what they're doing. They're like, ah, got you, Jesus. And, um, and Luke doesn't include this detail. Another gospel does. When he answers him, he actually says, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. <laughs> Which in the temple to the religious authorities, it's like, woo, okay, Jesus. And then he goes on and he compares their outward righteousness walk around in these long flowing robes, everyone pays them respect to the righteousness of this poor widow. She says this poor, he, he looks at the heart, right? This poor widow gave everything she had. It's not about the amount given, the weight of what's given and the heart behind what's given. So there are beautiful stories in between all of this, but for us, I really did, I think the big, um, the big point of this chapter is who has the authority? And if you think about it, that's really the big question in our life too. Who has the authority? What gives you the right Jesus? And for us, the stories, the question isn't related to the temple. It's related to our lives. What gives you the right Jesus to tell me how to parent? What gives you the right Jesus to tell me how to handle my finances? What gives you the right Jesus to tell me how to handle my relationships? Who to befriend and how to befriend them? Who to open up my home to and who to not? When I was coming up with different ways of saying that question, I remember the one, who died and made you king? <laughs> Which is really fascinating to consider in light of what comes next in the story that we're going to look at. So here's uh, the first application. Uh, number one, do you treat Jesus as if he really does have all authority? Not just some authority and not just suggestive authority. Because the good news of the gospel is more than just good advice. It's not the case that Jesus just comes and says, hey, you know, you might want to consider this. It could work out better for you. See, the good news of the gospel is there is a king and his name is Jesus and he has all authority. And if he has all authority, that includes my money, my home, my work, what I choose to do, how I spend my days, what I watch and what I don't. 
So do you treat Jesus as if he has all authority or is there some part of your life where you're holding on to it? And I'd love for you to just consider today, which of these is hardest for you to yield, to surrender, to say, yes, Lord, your will be done with my stuff, including my money, with my work, with my personal time, with my relationships. Which one for you is the hardest to be open-handed with? He has the authority there too. Now that doesn't always clarify what we do in those situations and in those realms. That's the question of discernment and prayer and listening. But that's a different question than does he have the right? We need to get clear on that first question first. Once you say, yes, you have the right, then you can ask the question, okay, God, what would you have me to do with my stuff? What would you have me do with my work and my personal time and my relationships? Here's the second application that for me emerged from this text is that before you ask your questions, you should check your motivations. Because a bunch of the questions the religious leaders ask, they're just trying to trick Jesus. They're just trying to trap him. And around here, if you've been here any amount of time, you know we are always encouraging people to ask their questions. We are not against questions. We are very for seeking truth here. We want you to explore. And if you have not yet chosen to follow Jesus and you have questions, one, you're welcome here. And two, we want to help you in that process and in that journey. We have a bunch of resources actually on our website. Just go to creekside.cc slash explore. And we put together a number of videos and resources for you. And you can even submit a different question that we haven't answered yet there. But again, sometimes questions aren't all that they seem. Sometimes people throw out questions, but they're not really questions. They're reasons why they don't think it's true. Or they're just kind of screens of like. And so I want to invite you to check your motivations. If you're in that process of seeking truth, I just want to encourage you to consider the question. If you had your questions answered, would it change? Would it cause you to change? If you were offered a compelling answer to the questions you have, would that be enough for you to declare Jesus as Lord? And related to that, are you prepared for God to question you back? That's what happens in this account, right? They ask Jesus their questions and then he questions them back. You tell me. I came across this quote from atheist Thomas Nagel that gets at this idea. And uh, even though his journey makes me sad and he, he wrote a lot against Christianity, um, I have to admire his honesty here. He says, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. What's he saying? I love how he calls it a cosmic authority problem. See, Thomas Nagel knows what some of us who even grew up in church still kind of try to deny, that if there is a God, then he has the say-so. And so he's just admitting, I don't want there to be a God who has the say-so.
So before you ask your questions, check your motivations. Are you really seeking truth? And if so, great, seek truth. We believe at the end of the journey, you will find Jesus. But check those motivations that you really are seeking truth. So, do you treat Jesus as if he has authority? Because he does. Your life as a Christian is truly determined by the simple answer to one question. Who is Jesus? And if you're here and you are still asking that question, you're not sure about the answer, I want to encourage you to ask that question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Not, why would a good God allow suffering? That's a good question. We have a video exploring that. But the primary question is, who is Jesus? And does he have the authority that he says he does? Because if he does, then we can work towards answers on these other questions. And for all of us as Christians, I want to remind us that this isn't a once-for-all question, unfortunately. It's like every morning you wake up and the natural inclination will be for you to sit on the throne of your life and be the one in control. That's just the natural inclination every day that you wake up. And so you have got to every day make a conscious choice like, no, no, not my will, but your will today, God. I'm going to step off this throne and let you sit there and you, whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do today and in this relationship and in my work and with my me time, and with my stuff and with my money. Whatever you say goes. The last thing I would love for you to consider is even though this is hard, even though there's something in us that rebels against having a master, having a Lord that isn't us, I love what the Bible says about this. It says, you can be a slave to sin or a slave to God. You have two choices, basically. And if there's some part of you that's like, oh, I don't want to let go of that authority. I, I don't want to let God have the say-so there. I want to hold on to that. Without realizing it, I'm sure, but what you're saying is, I would like sin to still be my master. I would love for you to just consider how is it going being your own master? <laughs> At least for me in my life, when I do that in any area of my life, it does not work out well. It does not lead to what Jesus promised, which is abundant life, overflowing good life. It just doesn't work out. And so I have to keep preaching the good news to myself that not just Jesus is Lord, but he is a good Lord. And when he directs us, it's out of love. And because he loves us, he wants what's best for us. And he's trying to lead us in the right way to live in his good world. And so who do you want to be your master? The king who would die for you or the sin that would enslave you? Let's pray together and then respond at song. Jesus, we thank you that you are king and you are a good king who loves us so much that you gave up your life for us. I pray that as we consider your authority, that we would realize deep in our hearts there is no aspect of our lives, no part of our lives, no relationship, no, no part of our work where you are not the rightful king of that. 
And so I pray you would help us to increasingly live into that reality, that we would treat you as the rightful king in all those areas of our lives. And if there's any areas of our lives or hearts that we've been just holding back from you and not submitting to you in, would you, Holy Spirit, right now, bring those to our minds and show us those? And would you help us to surrender those to you in this time? We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.